0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, did you hear about the man and his dog getting stranded when their car got stuck in deep snow in Oregon?
1: I think I heard about that.
0: Very scary. Yes, scary. Wow. Well, they were stranded for five, five days. days. And how did they survive, you might ask? Uh, By eating Taco sauce packets. <laughs>
1: That's so good.
0: And they periodically started the vehicle to stay warm. Wow. So after being rescued, the guy responded by saying, Taco Bell fire sauce saves lives. That's
1: so good. <laughs> and the dog likes the hot sauce. Yeah, guess, you
0: really think he gave any of the Taco Bell fire sauce to his dog?
1: <laughs> no, that's good. You know, don't you keep licorice in the glove box, don't you? Is I do. That for, it doesn't really snow around here. <laughs> but now it's stale licorice. You can okay. break it into pieces. <laughs> well, that's a nice story, I guess. And they live to tell the tale, hey? Eh?
0: But also, don't we have mustard packets in our car?
1: Yeah, you never know. Glove box. You never know when you need some mustard. That's right. Peter, I remember
0: years ago before the days of Uber... You left your wallet behind in a cab ride. Do you remember that?
1: Yes, I remember that. Do you remember what you were doing that uh, night? I have no recollection of that evening, Yes, you actually. do. No. Tell me. Oh, we were just about to get married, and it was a little male celebration. That's right.
0: Yeah. A few of your friends took you out for a I don't know. You weren't
1: there. So, you that's weren't that's there. So.
0: Right. So, well, I heard about the wallet being left behind.
1: Yes, that was a really dumb, dumb move.
0: <laughs> so you could see leaving your wallet behind, or ID, or a pair of glasses, or... A phone would be relatively common, right? Yep. Well, Uber released its annual list of most outrageous lost and found items that have been forgotten during rides. And it includes everything from a gold wedding band with diamonds to a tray of eggs to a porn picture of a couple. Okay. Yep. But also on the list, of course, I have to mention the animal related stuff since this is a radio show about animals, are full fish tank with fish and water. (laughs) That's good. Deer antlers. Yep. A bird yep. and an eight-week-old chihuahua.
1: Oh, that's not nice. I know. Wow. And, you know, I'd really like to hear that fish tank story. That's There must be more to that story.
0: Yeah. According to the Business Insider, there are now new restrictions placed by American Airlines on the type of and the age of service or support animals that will be allowed to be brought on board on planes. Beginning April 1... Animals under four months of age who are claimed to be service animals or emotional support animals will be banned to board. American Airlines states the reason for this change is because animals under this age usually have not received their necessary vaccinations that protect their members and customers.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Yep. And also they will restrict service animals to dogs, cats, and in some circumstances, miniature horses. And only cats and dogs are allowed to serve as emotional support animals. So I guess people will no longer be able to bring their emotional support snake or pig or alligator on the plane. Right. Too bad. Or a lizard. And this change also limits the number of emotional support animals allowed per passenger to one.
1: Yeah, that makes sense also.
0: I wonder if it frequently occurs where passengers would bring three of their emotional support
1: miniature horses on at one time. You know, if one of the horses is anxious, then he needs an emotional support miniature horse. Oh, that's right. Keep him calm.
0: Oh, so emotional support animals for emotional support animals. Oh, Oh, I like that.
1: Are these horses like potty trained or do they wear diapers? That seems like a little risky to me.
0: Well, I'll answer that. Between 2016 and 2017, there's been a 74% increase in the number of emotional support animals traveling on American's major airlines. Also, Delta Airlines reported an 84% increase in the number of reported incidents involving emotional support and service animals on board its flights, including urination, defecation, and
1: biting. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah, this whole thing has not really worked out yet.
0: Well, let me tell you that along with this increased of emotional support and service animals on board flights over the years, there was a decrease in percentage of people placing their pets with the cargo, right? Checking your pet like a checked piece of luggage. So I hope these stricter guidelines for allowing animals on board doesn't mean more people will allow their pets to sit with the cargo, because as you probably know, there's been hundreds of pet deaths reported over the past several years when pets are placed in the cargo hold. And I'm pretty sure as of March 2016, Delta no longer allows pets as checked baggage and prior to that time, Delta happened to have the highest rate of pet fatalities among domestic airlines and accounts for about 25 percent of all flight related pet deaths.
1: Yeah. Good to get out of that uh, line of work.
0: Right. But of course, cats and dogs small enough to fit in a carrier under the seat can still be brought on board as carry on luggage. And of course, exceptions to the rule, including the pets of military members who are being transferred and service and emotional support animals. OK. And on a somewhat related topic, a proposed legislation in Montana would criminalize misrepresenting a service animal. This bill would define a service animal as a dog or miniature horse individually trained to provide assistance to an individual with a disability. The definition does not include an emotional support animal. Apparently, people with real legitimate service animals are getting frustrated because they claim that they're being denied into a place of business because the establishment was dealing with improperly trained animals. According to the proposal... Any person knowingly or willingly representing an animal as a trained service animal that has not, in fact, been properly trained can be fined $100. Okay, that's not that much. The bill's sponsor, Representative Dan Lee Lodge, states people are misrepresenting their pet as a service dog. The problem I see with this is it's actually eroding the respect of the service animals that are needed. The bill would also allow businesses to ask questions about the service animals. So currently, a place of business is not allowed to ask a person to see identification to prove a dog is a service dog?
1: Well, Lori, business owners and staff, they're only allowed to ask two questions regarding service dogs. They're allowed to ask if the dog is a service animal that is required due to a disability, And they're allowed to ask what type of work or task the dog has been trained to do. That's it. The ADA, this is the ADA, so this is federal, prohibits them from asking about a person's disability. They're not allowed to require any type of ID or certificate. And also, they're not allowed to ask that the dog demonstrate what he's been trained to do. Mm. So only those two questions.
0: Otherwise, they're violating someone's rights under the American Disabilities Act. Right.
1: And that takes precedent over any local or state law.
0: Got it. Okay, well, as you know, it's pretty easy just to go online and register your animal as an emotional support animal, and a service animal for that matter. Anyway, opponents of the bill stated it doesn't follow current federal law and could lead to more discrimination. Joel Pedden with Montana Independent Living Project says, The Americans with Disabilities Act is very clear on the process for identifying a service animal. What we're concerned about is that it becomes watered down and that it really affects the legitimate service animals from having access to public places. Peter I see you have a few news items there before you go into yours I just have to say when you get a chance you have to check out a sanctuary called Freedom Farm which is in Israel near Tel Aviv and they take in disabled and rescued farm animals Mm. you'll come across about a minute and a half video and you'll see three legged donkeys blind goats you see braces on the legs of animals you see a cow with prosthetic legs and this place not only serves as a refuge for these animals, but serves to educate the public about the welfare of animals and about adopting a vegan diet or vegan lifestyle. It's called Freedom Farm. I love it.
1: I do, too. That's interesting. I, I, I like all these animal sanctuaries. They're very powerful places to yeah. visit. What you got there? Lori, you remember just a few months ago in Iowa, uh, their ag-gag law was struck down by a federal court saying that it was unconstitutional. Well, those legislators in Iowa, they are not giving up. They've got a new bill that would replace the law that was struck down. This bill creates a trespass charge for anyone using deception to gain access to a farm to cause physical harm or economic harm. And it carries a penalty of up to a year in jail. This is led by the Iowa Republicans, and it's designed to be more narrow in focus than the law that was just struck down. The Animal Legal Defense Fund, they sued over the previous law, the 2012 law. They say this bill under consideration is also unconstitutional, and they are prepared to continue their challenges. Mm. Yes. In Arizona, interesting developments following the closure of Dolphin Arizona, that was that swim with dolphin facility, and they had four deaths of dolphins since they opened in 2016. We've covered the last two of them. Their other four dolphins have been transported to Carl World Ocean Park in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and reportedly they're doing well. But what is to become of Dolphin Eris? Are they going to try to open up again or turn into something else? Well, we have news, not from them directly, but from the chief marketing officer of a nearby attraction called Odyssey in the desert. And uh, this person appears to have inside information. And the word is that they are going to rebrand and open up a new attraction that is not going to involve live animals of any kind. Reportedly, Ventura Entertainment, that's the company, they are assembling a team of top creative minds, and they're going to create something completely novel and engaging, not to involve live animals, and uh, we're going to hear more details in the coming months. That is, I have to say, a big surprise to me. I thought they were just going to go down fighting, but they see the light. They found some sense. Patricia Caddy, she is the co-founder of Dolphin Free Arizona. She said that we are pleased to learn of the news that Ventura Entertainment, Dolphin Arizona, will be rebranding and their facility will not integrate any animals into the new concept. We are still awaiting public announcement regarding their findings on the investigation, uh, what happened to the Duffs, and so and so. But congratulations to all those advocates who pushed hard for that, including uh, Patricia's group. Thank you. Now, let's see what they do. There's so many opportunities here for, you know, virtual reality and interactive displays and mazes. I mean, who knows what they can conjure up.
0: And hopefully be a great example to set for other facilities around the world.
1: Yep, you bet. Lori, do you know what the Darwin Awards are? Yeah, those are the Stupid People Awards. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Uh, A woman almost earned herself a Darwin Award. She was at the Wildlife World Zoo, an adult woman in her 30s. This is in Litchfield Park, also in Arizona. And she went over a fence that was designed to keep people a certain distance away from the cage where a jaguar was housed and she wanted to get in there so she could take a selfie with this jaguar. Well, before you know it, the jaguar reaches out with the paw and mauls this woman's arm. Witnesses said it looked pretty bad they were able to distract the jaguar by putting a bottle of water nearby and got the jaguar to release and then she was hauled off
0: is this about anything for the jaguar
1: no actually not the zoo says they are not going to do anything bad to the jaguar the woman's arm was supposed to be in pretty bad shape she was in a lot of pain with big claws stuck in her arm until the uh, jaguar released so she's pretty lucky He's pretty stupid pretty lucky and this selfie thing is really dangerous if you don't watch yourself isn't it
0: yeah you need that selfie you need to post that selfie on facebook Uh-oh. and you got to get 100 likes on your selfie <laughs> okay don't go away more with animals today right after the break back to animals today. If you're a cat or dog guardian, hopefully your animal has identification tags on their body and is microchipped. Many people think ID tags are enough if your companion animal gets lost or escapes from your home, but it's really not. I mean, what if the collar falls off of him or her or someone purposely or accidentally removes their collar and tags? Then what? Having both identification tags and microchipping your pet is the best thing you can do to ensure in the unlikely event you are separated from your animal that he or she will be successfully reunited with you and your family. Now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you a little story to emphasize this point that microchipping your animal is needed in addition to identification tags. But first, what is a microchip? Microchips are small. They're about the size of a grain of rice. A hermetically sealed glass capsule keeps moisture out and contains a chip, antenna, and a capacitor. Now the microchip is inserted into the loose skin of your dog's shoulder with a large needle. Now this may sound painful, it really isn't. The dogs don't even flinch when it's inserted so it doesn't even require sedation. A very interesting little fact here in 1985, Dr. Hannes Stoddard invented the microchip-based pet recovery system and formed American Veterinary Identification Devices, AVID, A-V-I-D. AVID's pioneering work in the field of radio frequency identification has been globally recognized by the award of 37 patents. AVID saves pets' lives every day by reuniting thousands of lost animals with their families. Now, I want to tell you a true story. A few years back in Indio, California, a stray or or lost dog was picked up and delivered to the Animal Care Center of Indio Animal Shelter. So that's the, the animal shelter in Indio, California. Although the shelter's usual protocol, like most shelters in the country, was to perform a scan for a microchip upon intake to help determine who, quote, owns this dog. Their scanning device had been broken for a while and dogs simply were not getting scanned. Now we learned about this serious and unfortunate breach of standard protocol in a rather roundabout fashion. A few times a year, my friend Catherine would on her own arrange for anywhere from five to 10 dogs to be transported from this disgraceful shelter in Indio, which had a very high kill rate to a Northern California shelter, which was highly successful at getting their dogs into loving homes. Now, after making all the transfer arrangements, Catherine would pack up her own vehicle and escort the dogs to the safety of the northern shelter. Now, the dog in question, upon entering the northern shelter, was scanned and found to have a microchip, which provided enough information to locate the dog's owner, who proved to be a resident of the town of Indio. Even though the dog had no ID tags, being microchipped made it possible to find the owner. Now, this man truly loved his dog and was terribly upset when he lost him. He immediately jumped into his car, drove 500 miles to reclaim his dog, and reunite him with the rest of his family. So, except for the unnecessary thousand miles of driving, the the stress the dog experienced, and the expense incurred by the owner, this fiasco ended happily. Nevertheless, think how easily it could have been completely Avoided if the Indio shelter only had a functioning scanner and used it. This dog was lucky to get out of the Indio shelter and to get scanned, even if 500 miles away. But we'll never really know how many lost and stray dogs picked up by the city of Indio's animal control during the time the shelter was not properly scanning were unnecessarily killed instead of being reunited with their families. So very important, number one, make sure your dog and cat is microchipped. Number two, keep your microchip registry information current. The shelter where you adopted the dog or cat or a veterinarian can assist you in locating the registry for the chip. And number three, don't forget all companion animals should also be wearing current identification tags. And you are listening to Animals Today, your home first series talk about animals. Join us each week for animal news from around the world and visit us at animalstodayradio.com. I want to remind my listeners how important it is to plan for the care of your animals in case you die before them. And I want to tell you a little story related to this. Several years ago, when I was single and living in a condominium in Palm Springs, I had an elderly neighbor who lived across the way who had a dog, Chloe. Chloe was an eight-year-old white terrier mix, and my neighbor just loved this dog. Now, sadly, after an illness, this woman passed away, and she never made arrangements for someone to care for Chloe after she died. Now, her children traveled from the other side of the country to bury their mother, but they had no interest in taking or adopting Chloe, so Chloe ended up in a shelter where, as you know, tragically, many unwanted dogs are euthanized. This was clearly the last thing my neighbor would have wanted to happen to Chloe. Now, fortunately, because of my good working relationship with the shelter personnel, they agreed not to euthanize Chloe and to hold her until I could find a loving forever home. And fortunately, this did happen. Chloe lived out her senior years, not only with the wonderful couple, but with their shepherd
1: mix, who she adored. And you helped place Chloe, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. And your friend who passed away, she didn't have a will, but also didn't tell her children what she would want to happen to Chloe. So there was really chaos, wasn't there? There
0: was chaos.
1: Okay. So there's the big message you have to plan, but what really should you do? And you spoke with Frances Carlyle, a legal expert about this, uh, a few months ago, didn't you?
0: Yes, Frances is a New York attorney specializing in trust and estate planning. And she shared her experiences with us in the steps all dog guardians should take
1: when preparing their will. And the first is that you need to prepare something and you need to have a lawyer who's experienced in this. She explained that many lawyers, they did not learn this in law school and they're just not up to what they uh, could do or should do. So make sure you uh, speak with someone who's done this before. Which is not to say that you necessarily need a will if you were going to communicate your wishes to trustworthy friends or family and even get it in in writing. But just uh, make sure you take some steps so so people know what you want.
0: Peter, you need an agreement from your friends or family. A lot of times friends or family don't
1: really want that responsibility after they're gone. So just don't lay it on them. A further step you could take is to create a pet trust, right? Right. So you can't leave property or money directly to your companion animals. They're not allowed to receive that, but you can create a legal structure, a trust uh, that you can fund with money and then designate trustees to care for your animals when you're gone with your specific instructions.
0: And it's important to review your arrangements each year to confirm that the caregivers and trustees you've chosen are
1: still willing and able to fulfill these duties. And we do that yearly with our people, too, don't we? Right. Which reminds me of uh, Leona Helmsley.
0: Yes, Leona Helmsley and her dog, Trouble. Trouble. So Trouble was her Maltese dog, and she left $12 million in the trust fund for Trouble. Right, Peter? But later, the judge lowered the inheritance to $2 million. And listen, after receiving numerous death and kidnapping threats, Trouble retired to Florida. And she died at the age of 12 in 2011. But she had full-time security and received round-the-clock, luxurious care from the general manager of the Helmsley Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota.
1: So that's probably the richest inheritance by any animal.
0: I do believe so. More with animals today, right after the break. Thank you for listening to animals today your home for serious talk about animals now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts animals today is brought to you by the animal welfare organization advancing the interests of animals please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show that's aianimals.org and thank you for your interest and your support
1: Welcome back to the show. We have some hopeful news for horses and anyone who cares about horses in the United States. There is brand new federal legislation just introduced that would permanently ban the slaughter of horses for human consumption and end the current export of American horses for slaughter abroad. Here to tell us about this legislation, I'm very pleased to welcome Chris Hyde, who is a lobbyist with Return to Freedom Wild Horse Conservation. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thank you for having me. Chris, there are two parts of this bill. Let's take them one at a time, please, beginning with the part that would ban the slaughter of horses for human consumption in the U.S. Uh, Is that happening currently? Are there Americans consuming horse meat voluntarily and knowingly?
2: No, there aren't. And uh, we've actually had stopped that. Uh, Well, actually, that really hasn't taken place other than kind of incidentally, you know, you had some restaurants that would import horse meat from back overseas, uh, you know, selling it in odd restaurants that would want to sell it as a delicacy. But they'd usually import it back from France or Belgium, uh, you know, through exotic meat dealers. Yeah, But again, that was fairly rare, and you usually had to ask for it or go to, you know, rather exclusive restaurants to get it but outside of that that really didn't take place in the United States and there was sometimes you know after world war 2 or right at the end of world war 2 with meat shortages but again it was extremely rare and uh, it, it never took place in the United States but slaughter did take place in the United States up until about 2007 when we shut the plants down um, under kind of state law, uh, one plant in Illinois and two plants in Texas. So what is the point of the
1: first part of the legislation which would ban the slaughter uh, for human consumption if no one's eating it?
2: Well, it's a really important to, to kind of apply laws fairly domestically and internationally. You kind of have to apply them fairly all around uh, because if we were just to ban the export of horse meat, then certainly international countries and other countries that we have trade agreements with uh, would say, well, the United States isn't applying these laws fairly to themselves. They would do, well, obviously, you know, we're, we're kind of in a unique situation with trade agreements uh, under, under the current uh, administration, as we have been in the past. But normally, you know, these uh, foreign countries would say, well, the United States isn't treating itself and its own um, citizens the same as they are treating foreign markets. So they would kind of sue us under agreements and things like that. So that's why we were making sure to ban it here, even though consumption really doesn't take place here. So you know that's why we really need to make sure we ban it domestically, uh, even though it doesn't take place. Uh, and when the plants even were operating here, all of the meat still was exported out of the United States. Mm. Uh, so really that's the ultimate goal is that we want to make sure we close the plants here so they don't export the meat out of the country. So talk about the exportation
1: of live horses for slaughter a- abroad. What's happening now? Which horses
2: are subjected to this? Yeah. And that that's kind of happened in a couple of different situations. We always had horses that were being exported to Canada and Mexico. And actually a lot of people didn't realize that there were horses that were being flown live to Japan uh, mm-hmm. You know, some years ago, which, which helped kind of get a lot of thoroughbred industry support behind us is that a Kentucky Derby winning horse called Ferdinand was slaughtered in Japan and sold for human consumption. Now he had been sent over for breeding after he had won the Kentucky Derby in the United States and he'd been shipped to Japan for breeding. And when he was done, you know, making money for them uh, as as a breeding stud, they just decided to dump him off and and slaughter him. That's incredible. But still, there are horses that are shipped live to Japan. And they have a very quirky law is that, you know, you could be a 30-year-old horse in Japan, but as long as you stand on Japanese soil for, I think it's about 18 months, you could be considered a domestically raised horse. And then you could be sold on the market as a domestically raised horse, even though you're a 30-year-old horse from the United States. Uh, so you have that market that was going on, but it, that wasn't huge. Most of the market is they are shipping live horses, and they always were shipping live horses from you know the 80s and 70s up until currently, to Canada and Mexico, and there are plants not far across the border in Mexico and Canada who then in turn send the meat to their parent companies in France, Belgium, and then they in turn distribute the horse meat throughout Europe, and that continues to this day. And that kind of transitions us us to really the big important part of this bill, which is we would need to make sure that the horse meat from the United States, whether it's, again, even if it's slaughtered here or continues to be exported, because that's what is continuing to happen to this day, is we need to ensure that that live horses that are being exported, that that meat does not continue, that those horses and the meat that comes from those horses does not continue to flood into the market. American horse meat uh, is going to, you know, Mexico, Argentina, uh, throughout Latin America. It will go to China, Russia, uh, Italy. Uh, and the reason for this expansion of a market is that several years ago, the EU, had, you know, obviously if anybody had followed this issue or seen the international news, is that the EU was hit with a scare of tainted horse meat. And some of that actually showed up in IKEA meatballs. Yeah, I remember the big market of that, uh, and that is because you know that it didn't necessarily get traced back to the United States, but it caused a big concern that the EU was cracking down even further on tainted horse meat and uh, you know American horse meat, which is really the impetus for the Safe Act, which is the Safeguard American Food Exports Act is well, American horses are given all kinds of drugs. Uh, currently, I think it's about 320 drugs that are given to horses. None of them appro- are approved to be used on horses that are raised for food. Now, that doesn't mean many of them couldn't be used for horse uh, for horses that are, are raised for food. It just means none of them are approved to be raised for horses for food. But certainly many of those, like phenylbutylozone, or butte, which is extremely common for horses, is highly toxic to human beings and if if you're given butte as a foal, that would exclude you for the rest of your life, even if you're only given once. So the EU is very concerned about horses coming out of the United States because there is no tracking uh, system for drugs that are given to American horses. So the EU did crack down on American horses and put some restrictions in place So, you know, American horses needed to find other markets, and the plants from Canada and Mexico were looking for other markets besides the EU, hence going to Russia and China and South America and stuff like that. So the, the market has expanded outside of the EU. So tell us about this
1: legislation that you're working on and who's behind it, and what do you hope to really achieve here?
2: Well, again, it's the Safeguard American Food Exports Act. Uh, it is HR nine sixty one was just reintroduced in the House of Representatives. It's the same version uh, that was uh, in the last Congress. This time, however, we, because the Congress is democratically controlled, with sponsors. Uh, this time, it is the sponsor of the bill is Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, who is a Democrat from Illinois, which is where we closed the last horse slaughter facility in two thousand seven. And the lead co-sponsor is a Republican from Florida, Vern Buchanan, he was the sponsor last Congress. And the hope is, again, is to it's not an outright ban on slaughter, but it would make sure that all horse meat is prohibited for being used or approved for human consumption. So you know it's kind of a roundabout way of making sure that all horse meat is basically condemned for human consumption. You know, because again, it's not safe. Uh, you know, horses are raised, and I say companion. I mean that very broadly. You know, for either race or you know, companion, or not really agriculture because that's kind of very rare to traditionally use them as agriculture. But uh, you know, not necessarily they're not food animals. So any other you know activity besides food animals. So that's our hope. Uh, we're looking to continue to get co-sponsors, get the numbers up. And hopefully under this new democratically controlled House of Representatives, uh, we can move to pass the bill and, and finally put an end to, to horse slaughter.
1: And is there interest in the Senate right now?
2: There is. There is. We obviously have uh, Senator uh, Menendez yep. uh, from New Jersey has been a longtime sponsor of this bill. And Senator Lindsey Graham, who is uh, taking over as chair of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. It's, the Senate is still Republican-controlled. So we do have kind of two different, you know, chambers with this. Uh, But thankfully, the Senate has been better than the Republican controls in the past. So, you know, they've, you know, Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, actually has been a supporter of banning horse slaughter. So hopefully now with these two chambers, uh, you know, while not aligned politically, hopefully for horse slaughter, they'll be aligned, uh, you know, for us. And, you know, we just need a chance. I think that's what we've said all along over the years is, if if given a chance, we can pass this bill.
1: So any U.S. citizen can contact their legislator and and give them their opinion on this, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Return to freedom dot org. We have uh, action alerts and phone numbers. You can find your member. Uh, You can send them an email through the, the, the action alerts on the front page. You can find phone numbers. I encourage everybody to go to town hall meetings when these legislators are home. That's, you know, speak to them directly. Yeah. That's the best way. Go to them, you know, face to face in a town hall meeting and bring this thing up and talk to them about it so they hear from you. They hear from ranchers. They hear from farmers who don't want the ban. It's time to hear from activists who do want a ban.
1: Well, thank you very much for bringing this uh, information to us. I've been speaking with Chris Hyde, representing Return to Freedom Wild Horse Conservation. Thanks a lot, Chris. Great. Thank you very much.
0: I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful, diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species, with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure-of-eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise, quick movements, including backwards and upside-down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long, specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than 2 grams, that's less than a penny, and most weigh less than 5 grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip, they often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cords handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today.
1: Recently, we broadcast Lori's interview with PETA's Ingrid Newker, in which they went into quite a bit of detail about the fur industry and how it finally looks like its days are numbered. And coincidentally, we recently discovered a group with a special interest in foxes, including rescuing them from fox farms, helping and rehabilitating injured foxes, and finding them good homes. All interesting topics, I thought. So... Save a Fox Rescue was founded by Michaela Rains and she is with us today. Welcome. Hi. Okay, so tell us, how did you become interested in foxes?
3: I guess it all started when I was in high school. I was 15 years old. I was volunteering with wildlife rehabbers, and uh, that's when I met my very first fox. He was a species gray fox and he was an orphan baby wild fox that needed to be bottle raised and you know eventually released into the wild that's that's where it really hit me for me um i didn't have any prior interest in foxes before meeting that one so that's that's what started it all so we are a non-profit 501c3 wildlife rescue specializing in only non-releasable captive-born wildlife so All of our foxes, for instance, were either pet rescues, pet surrenders, or fur farm rescues. And we are located in southern Minnesota.
1: Can people have them as pets? What do they need to be happy? What's it like?
3: I mean, the way I try to describe it to people is having a fox, is is essentially like having a wild animal. Like especially if you're trying to have it in your house, it's like having a wild animal in your house. You can't expect it to be like a dog. They don't potty train. They're very destructive. Yeah. Their their personality is very wild like. So creating a bond with a fox though is very special though. Just because you really have to work for it. It's not kind of like an immediate thing. I feel like with dogs being more domesticated as they are, they you know tend to bond to people. That's They've been bred, you know, for people as working animals and such things like that. So they're they're supposed to bond to people. Foxes are not supposed to bond to people. So just having that bond is just something very special, in my opinion, anyways.
1: And where do you keep them? Where do they live? Do they bite you? Do you have to get them fixed?
3: So we here at Save a Fox Rescue, we have um, different fox yards. So we have four different fox yards. We have like an Arctic fox yard, and then um, we have area for a gray fox and everything like that. And we have specialized fencing, so we have a lean-in at the top of our fence. And then we have big guards at the bottom, so they they can't dig out. And without the specialized fencing, like, you know, some people think they could get a fox and maybe keep it in their fenced backyard, but they, they're very quick and agile. They can jump over any regular fence, no problem, yeah. <laughs> or dig underneath them. So uh, we have the specialized fencing here. We have fox enclosures within the fencing. So at nighttime, they go in their fox cages, and then during the day, they get let out into their big open fox yards. And then we have a few pet foxes surrenders that are indoors with us they have always been indoors um, from the time they were babies so they uh, remain inside which is a lot of work because they get into everything Um,
1: well what happens to the outdoor foxes do they get released or do they are are they going to spend their lives with you there
3: so because we were born in captivity, um, it's actually a law that they can't be released into the wild. And many of these foxes aren't even natural colors. These are not colors that would exist in the wild. They're very, they're very different because they've been captive bred in fur farms for 50 plus generations. And they just don't really have the skill to survive. Yeah. My job isn't to teach them how to hunt or teach them how to survive in the wild. My job is a little bit different from what a wildlife rehabber's job would be because we want our foxes to be social with people because they have to live with people their entire lives. Like we want them to be as happy as possible. So for them to be comfortable around people is really really necessary for these foxes in particular.
1: You mentioned owner surrender as one of the ways the foxes come to you. How often does that happen? And do people really think they can live happily with a fox?
3: Owner surrender happens often and it's I mean, it's not always the owner's fault. It it really depends on the situation because we've had Fox surrenders that came from really great homes and they were only surrendered just due to the fact that they were either moving to a city that didn't allow a Fox or... Foxes are illegal, illegal in many areas in the United States. There's many states that have them banned and even certain states that allow them, they're banned in many cities. So, sometimes people have to surrender them for those reasons, and then other times they're surrendered just because they did not know what they were getting into and This is partially because breeders don't many breeders i mean I'm sure there's good breeders of all kinds out there, but there's many that don't inform people about the species that they're getting um there's some people that are just in it for the money, so those foxes tend to get in situations where people don't know how to take care of them because the people assumed they were like a dog. (laughs)
1: So
3: then they end up here.
1: Tell us a little about the industry of fox farming in the United States and Canada. Do you know about how large it is and what happens to the fur of these animals? Where does it go?
3: Luckily, it is starting to be a dying trait. There isn't as many fur farms around as there used to be, but they do still exist, especially in my area, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, um, Iowa, there's, there's many fur farms up in this this northern area, and it's just because the reason they have fur farms here and not, like, down in Florida is because of we have seasons, and there's certain times of the year that the foxes' prime is what fur farms call it because that's when they use their fur. So the fur industry is a really sad thing. Some people think that they're just shaved, yeah. and that's how their fur is used, but no, they do have to be killed to get their pelts. We don't need fur anymore. It might have been necessary many, many, many years ago, but it's not necessary now. Um, so the fur, I mean, the fur industry is dying. That's that's the great part.
1: Yeah, I think.
3: There's <laughs> you... not as many people um, I, I purchasing think... it, but people do purchase it for taxidermy purposes, too. So that's, that's another thing. It's not just the clothing that fur farms are in business for. It is for things like taxidermy as well.
1: Mm. Can people visit Save-A-Fox, visit you and look at your foxes or play with them or feed them or whatever?
3: Yeah, yes. So we are open to the public. It is by appointment only. So people schedule through our Facebook page, Save-A-Fox Rescue. And they can come in and they can learn about the foxes. They can even interact with them. They can feed them treats. Um, Depending if they get lucky, the foxes are very... Unpredictable. So sometimes we don't know if they are going to bond to somebody or not. They're very particular on who they like and we don't know what it is about Uh, the people that come through and how they choose who they like. But if they get lucky enough, they might even be able to pet one of the foxes. In the future, I would like to expand, not necessarily here, but I'd like to have another location where someone else, you know, another team kind of takes care of the animals. But we're pretty much at our capacity here but we have a pretty good we have a pretty good flow so we always have foxes new foxes coming in and then other foxes being transferred to other rescues or sanctuaries or educational programs and um, even other pet situations as long as it's you know they're qualified
1: so how can people contact you if they want to learn more or volunteer or donate what how do they reach you
3: so people contact us usually by email if they want to come out and um you know, do a tour or make a donation
1: or just learn more about foxes. And what's that email address? SaveAfox at yahoo.com. Great. Michaela Rains, thank you very much. Really interesting. And
0: thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.